Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. The best use of imagination is creativity, and the worst use of imagination is anxiety. Feedback, Chopra. For those of you who are following my adventures in anxiety, I wanted to provide an update on the progress that I've made with regard to my flying and to share with you what I've learned in my adventure along the way. The first step for me was to look up anxiety and to start to do essentially a personal lit review or a literature review that was motivated by a personal experience. Let me back up and tell you what that experience was. In December 2018, I was on a flight coming from Maui to Oahu, which is about a 45-minute adventure altogether in, in the um, total time in the air. And when we landed, I had this overwhelming sensation, fear, panic, heart palpitations, sweaty palms, um, tightening of my throat. Felt like I couldn't breathe and that I was having a heart attack. And I noticed that everybody had stood up on the plane and was blocking the aisle. I was seated towards the back of the plane I was at a window seat. There were two other people who were seated next to me. And the thoughts that were racing through my head were things like, why is everybody standing up? How am I going to get out of here? I can't breathe. I wonder if I can open the door. Where's the closest exit? I know there's one behind me. Maybe I can jump over the seats. What if I get, I could go in the bathroom? The idea of being in the bathroom, a small, tiny airplane bathroom, doesn't make sense really when you're feeling trapped. Neither did the thought of, can I squeeze through the window? Yeah, I think that happened to that one lady. Remember, oh wait, that didn't end so well. And as you can see, my thoughts went in all sorts of different directions. And I had never experienced that sensation before and certainly not on an airplane. And I enjoy flying. I've done many flights, several trips in my life or even just several trips this year alone. Um, since that experience, that was my first experience, though, where I um, had this overwhelming, seemingly out of the blue, negative, painful sensation and experience. And um, all I could think to do was four. I just remember the number four um, in meeting with and conversations with Pat Fryman, who is a psychologist and studies and practices behavior analysis. He had done a presentation um, at the conference here in Hawaii, and I had the opportunity to speak with him about anxiety and to speak with him about strategies. And this was just out of curiosity without a personal connection for me. And what I remember him telling me, and now I I think I remember more clearly than in the moment, was breathe. Um, Hold, breathe in for four seconds. Hold your breath for four seconds. Breathe out to the count of four and repeat it four times. And I'm not sure if there were other steps or if there was more to that story, but in that moment, all I could think to do was the number four thing to say, and then I just started doing it. People started to to deplane, get off the plane. I got myself off the plane. Um, Luckily, nobody could see the thoughts that were in my head. I think that most people thought I was just standing there like anyone else waiting to get off the plane. 
But as soon as I got into the car of my friend who was picking me up, I shared with her the experience I had and how just overwhelming and confusing it was, Um, especially because it was such a short flight. But after that experience, I wanted to know why that happened, where that sensation came from, what I should be doing about it, what I can do about it, what I had done maybe to contribute to that. Um, And so what's really interesting is that as I started my research, one of the first steps that's recommended by the researchers in overcoming a panic um, disorder or symptoms associated with anxiety and panic is to try to understand the condition and to start by very literally learning about the, um, you know, what's happening in your body when you experience this attack, Um, what's going on, the constriction of the blood vessels, um, you know, sort of these these are just dots. Um, You know, why is your heart rate, you know, increasing? Why are your palms sweating? It also got me thinking, of course, like a behavior analyst would, about respondent and operant conditioning. You know, what was it about that? situation where they're, you know, programming common stimuli to other airplanes? Is it indicative of a past event? What are the contributing factors? Something that I learned is that anxiety disorders frequently begin for adults between the ages of 20 and 30. I just had uh, my 38th birthday, so perhaps it's a little bit late for me, um, but certainly can be triggered by life events. The basically it suggests that the course is often characterized by some sort of chronic um, situation that's sort of been residual, or it's something that was precipitated by an event. And um, certainly there have been events in my life that would contribute to um, not wanting to be in closed spaces, things like being trapped in an elevator at ABAI, which is one of our national conferences, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, a couple years back. Imagine 22 behavior analysts in an elevator for 22 minutes. Um, there were too many people in the elevator, so it stopped, and we were stuck, and um, it was overly packed, very tight, very cramped. And I remember in that moment having the, the fear, although not a panic attack, not those same feelings, Um, but the fear that somebody was going to freak out. Now, what I didn't comprehend or even consider was that that person might be me. Um, And in that situation, it wasn't. At least I don't think so. Everyone stayed relatively calm. But what what I noticed was that certain people were laughing, having a good time. Other people were very quiet and still. And it kind of brings to mind for me the concept of, you know, everybody out in the world is so diverse. And imagine us all crammed in an elevator together or stuck on an airplane together. And I don't mean that in a way that I don't want to associate with mankind or, you know, uh, with humanity, but just there are people who are struggling every day. Um, There are people who are struggling throughout their days. There are people who might just be struggling in that moment, and it may not be apparent to the rest of us. And so I kind of have always traveled with a smile on my face, and sometimes I have my music in my earbuds, my art book, but it has not become so important that I travel until really I relocated to Hawaii six years ago, and now I live on an island. So to see my family, to see friends, to see anything other than the Oahu coast, um, I would need to get on an airplane. 
So what's also concerning to me was that these are situations that they're being trapped in an elevator with several years before. And although an airplane is confined, I had never considered it similar environment to an elevator. Um, I also did have an incident on an airplane where I had been um, confronted and assaulted by a gate agent prior to boarding or as I was boarding onto the plane. The plane was my safe space once it was resolved. Um, however, I was very upset, emotional, distraught, and that was about a four-hour plane ride. Now, if you asked me to just sequence my life in order, you would go, well, Amanda, there's some very clear triggers. But something that I had not really fully comprehended or or truly internalized um, until I experienced it was that these feelings or these events can be connected but can be so removed in time from when they sort of rear their ugly head again. Now, anybody who understands sociology, psychology, and behavior analysis, education, human development would understand that our very distant past events are going to impact even our current and future behavior, of course. But it was to the extent that I personalized it that really kind of was eye-opening for me and got me to a place of thinking about what those um, events mean and how what we can do when we learn about ourselves that way um, that can help us when we interact with others. So some things that I mentioned already, but to just uh, re refer to the research, some panic attack symptoms often include things like shortness of breath, um, heart palpitations, chest pains, trembling, shaking, choking, nausea, uh, being nauseous, uh, feeling dizzy, numbness or tingling sensations, and the fear of losing control, going crazy, being trapped, or the fear of dying. Um, now, there's differences in panic attacks, panic disorder, all of that information. I am not an expert in that area as a medical professional, but there is some information about you may be experiencing and suffering from a panic disorder if you have frequent unexpected panic attacks, if they're not tied to specific situations or locations, if you spend a large amount of your time worrying about future panic attacks, and then if you are behaving differently because of those panic attacks. Um, and I think that that's something you may need, we may all need, somebody else's opinion to tell us whether or not we're having those impacts. Um, when I think about, you know, avoidance and I think about significant extreme cases of avoidance, that might be things like agoraphobia, which is, often, um, you know, associated with somebody afraid to leave their home, but it could also be not wanting to sit in certain parts of the airplane. It could be avoiding certain routes or travel. It could be um, not, you know, going out into different places and only going to three or four comfortable places or going places where it's predictable or with people that you know. And, of course, that can be really debilitating on a person's lifestyle and on their quality of interactions socially and for the people in relationships and in their lives. There's information about anticipatory anxiety, which I learned that instead of feeling relaxed in your normal self between a panic attack, you're always anxious and worrying about a future one. That happened to me after my second panic attack associated with an airplane. And um, I actually was sleeping 
and uh, was having the worry, the dream about being on the flight and that I was going to have a panic attack and I woke myself having a panic attack. Um, I was not able to find too much in the research about that, although it was certainly not the only case of that. Um, and I think that that would fall into some of the anticipatory anxiety stage. As I mentioned, there's the phobia as well, avoiding certain situations, uh, crowded places, cars, airplanes, subways, sports arenas, social gatherings. I found myself feeling really uncomfortable sitting at restaurant tables and booths um, when I started to really look at where these feelings were occurring. And being a behavior analyst is helpful in the sense that I can take data, I can look at a linear, sequential, chronological um, you know, chain of events and kind of break them down can be as systematic as possible. I understand um, certain breathing techniques. I've practiced many of them for myself and with clients in the past. But what's super challenging here is that, and I think many of you will relate, is that the panic is about not being able to control something and not knowing when it's going to occur is also in itself a loss of control. One of the recommendations emphasized in the literature is to expose ourselves to the triggers that make us feel anxious. Just the thought of doing that made me feel more anxious. Now, I am going to have to probably move to the mainland if I cannot solve a way to be on planes. And so for me, I have a high motivation, high um, reason to want to go different places, to see different people, and to continue to live in Hawaii where I'm very happy living here on the North Shore of Oahu. So when it comes to flying, I'm going to expose myself to that situation. But it, I was uncomfortable with the thought of, like, putting myself in the back row in the middle seat. Like, do I really need to expose myself to that? Um, I would avoid that prior to a panic attack because it's not my comfortable place on a plane or it's not my least uncomfortable place on the plane, if you will. Um, but it's something to really kind of to think about. Um, you know, some suggestions from the research were making a list of the situations, places, activities that you've been avoiding. So maybe it's not the airplane altogether, but maybe um, for me it's been window seats. I don't want to sit by the window seat. And I miss traveling during the day, being able to fly over and see where I'm leaving or arriving to and so that's certainly a place that has been impacted, and that might be a goal that I'd like to expose myself and make sure that I can do that. And how are we going to do that systematically? How are you going to do that in a way where you've built in other supports? You know, you're going to try and change one thing at a time. You're going to be supported in doing it. Um, and as I mentioned, while there is the possibility of neighbor island travel, typically the shortest flight from Hawaii is six hours, and it's over the ocean. In the moment, moment of the panic attack, there are different recommendations. Some people suggest distraction techniques, but the majority of the research indicates that you should try to push through your panic attack. You should welcome it. You should name it. You should embrace it. Not necessarily, I want to say, like crave it, but just anticipate that you're likely to feel that feeling or those experience those sensations when you are in situations where you've experienced it before. That becomes easy after the first panic attack, um, not so easy prior to uh, an occurrence, but definitely don't, don't worry about things that haven't happened and aren't likely to happen as much as you can control that. Um, some panic attacks 
come from triggers that can overwhelm your senses. And there is some information about if you're in a fast-paced environment, maybe closing your eyes if possible, um, maybe um, putting in music. For me, the music didn't help. It was very frustrating. It was actually competing with my thoughts, like it was disrupting them. And I found later over, um, you know, some trial and error and some reading of the research and literature and systematically kind of thinking about this, as well as many, many, many opportunities to be on planes, more than I intended even prior to this experience, um, I am finding things that work better for me. And when we think about statements in your head, like I'm going to sing a song or listen to music, you know, that falls into the camp of sort of avoiding or not embracing the anxiety. And the other sort of idea and approach is that you can talk to it. You know, what if I'm stuck on this plane? Okay, what if you are stuck on this plane? It'll be really uncomfortable, but you have your own hydroflask. They have water on this plane. The bathrooms work. There are emergency exits. You know, it's not about, for me, the likelihood that something's going to go wrong in the sense of a catastrophe with flying because there's a completely different approach to sort of um, certain types of phobias or anxieties, not just associated with airplanes, but some can be associated with, um, you know, the fear of, of dying on the plane. I'm fear, My fear is trapped. I'm afraid of being stuck there with a bunch of people who could do a bunch of things at any moment, and I can't get out, and I can't get away, and I'm going to be stuck there. And so the idea, the camp of embracing it is what if I'm stuck there with all those people? All right, I meet some people. I like meeting people. So as you start to kind of talk through that, you might be able to um, – figure out which senses are most impacted and whether or not closing your eyes or talking to yourself or using cognitive distraction is what's going to be effective for you. And as I mentioned, you're going to probably want some support in that. So maybe you're going to work with a professional who's going to help you identify what can be the most effective for you. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is highly recommended for this. It focuses on the thinking patterns and behaviors that sustain um, your attacks or your thoughts when you're triggered. It helps you look at those fears, um, you know, kind of that what if and, and talking to it. If you had a panic attack, for example, while you were driving, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Well, it's, you're probably going to have to pull over. Um, you're not likely to crash the car or to have a heart attack or whatever, um, but you might need to slide off the side of the road and park. Um, but once you experience or learn and the idea is repetition and replaying. Um, but once you learn that nothing truly disastrous is going to happen in most experiences, the, the idea of being confronted with that panicking feeling doesn't become as overwhelming. So every resource that I found suggested breathing, the slow, deep, methodical breathing. And as I mentioned, there's different techniques for that. It can be the four times four. It could be... Um, you know, standing up and doing certain things with your diaphragm. It could be looking at a visual. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you could do that. Most of the research that I read recommended doing that on a daily basis and not just in the moment of crisis. While there are a lot of things that people said that you should do or don't do, I feel that ultimately you'll find what works for you. And, of course, if we're being systematic, conceptually systematic, um, as individuals, not just as researchers or practitioners, 
but in our own lives. And we're going to start with the research. We're going to look at the evidence base. We're going to see what the experts can tell us. And we can certainly blend what we know about behavior and behavior change um, into something that will be effective for us. Um, I think that, you know, the most important change for me has been identifying not just those past events that might have been involved or somewhat, you know, associated if, if nothing, you know, major, but definitely contributors. But in addition to that, I evaluated the stress in my life, right? We had just uh, filed a class action or civil rights lawsuit here in the state um, for, you know, children who are not able to access their insurance coverage. That was passed a few years prior. So, yeah, that's a big thing on our plate. And um, conference planning and, you know, responsibilities with jobs and relationships and family members and conferences and weddings and babies and funerals and how do you juggle all of that. And so, you know, kind of identifying what the particular stress that you might be under um, can be really helpful. And if you don't do that, um, it will make your symptoms worse. So my advice to you is quit your job, break up, speak up, communicate, have your difficult conversation, um, confront it and kick it out of your head. Don't let it live there rent-free. Of course, that's easier said than done. There's a general consensus from experts that eating better, sleeping and exercising more and drinking less alcohol will reduce your feelings associated with anxiety. Um, the thought of doing all of those things that are not currently all in my repertoire makes me feel um, under more stress. And these things don't always have an immediate effect and they can take a while to reveal their benefit, which might make it hard or does make it hard for us to acquire new skills or to, um, you know, change certain behaviors that may not be that strong in our repertoire without achieving the benefits that we believe or hope are possible, right? So I think about uh, the Aubrey Daniels or Aubrey Daniels International, the picnic analysis that comes into play here. Things that are positive, immediate, certain, negative, immediate, and certain are going to have more influence and control over our behavior. And people are more likely to do things that have positive, immediate, and certain outcomes, or even negative outcomes, as long as they're immediate and certain. So if you, somebody says to you, like, hey, you should not smoke cigarettes, or you should put down that, you know, e-cigarette, because it's going to cause emphysema, because it's going to cost you a lot of money, because... I don't know, something that maybe kind of could happen to certain percentages of people in the far, far away future, then that's not going to change your behavior. Um, research suggests and people's behavior has indicated what's more likely to change your behavior is if the cost of that cigarette or those e-cigarette cartridges are now, you know, $300 each. Whoa, that's going to impact, right? That's a big, uh, um and, and that's immediate, and it's certain. It might be negative, but it's immediate if it goes into effect, and it's a certain outcome, right? Or if somebody says to you, like, hey, let's, you know, some girl that you're really into or guy that you're really into, and they say, hey, like, let's, you got to wash your hands every single time you smoke a cigarette, and you have to brush your teeth every single time. And that becomes aversive, but they do it contingently, so that means that it's immediate and certain it's going to be more likely to control or to decrease your smoking behavior, at least in their presence, than the fear of emphysema 60 years from now. 
when we think about it with regard to, you know, eating better, sleeping, exercising more, that's not going to have an immediate and certain result. And it, it might help, or these researchers tell me it's going to help, or even if I know scientifically and believe that it's going to work, it's a lot of effort. And so it's hard to get people to engage in behaviors that have high effort, response effort, when there's a low payout, which is what we know is the matching law, right? Behavior goes or reinforcement flows. So what are some positive, immediate, certain outcomes that we can achieve? Um, specific to the fear of being trapped, this can start the night before. So yes, I can try to get a good night's sleep, but I can also make sure I book flight times that are convenient for getting to the airport. I can arrange transportation. I can decide if I'm just going to park my car there. I can do my part to make sure that it's not such a hassle and I can take out the, um, the anxiety of, or I can not necessarily take out the anxiety, but I can take out the likelihood that these other mishaps are going to happen that I'm gonna to contribute to them by being prepared. So making small changes or engaging in behaviors that are gonna have immediate and certain consequences. Once your feeling of anxiety has subsided, like as you're on the plane, after you've boarded, maybe once you've taken off, the recommendation is to engage in a pleasurable activity, which we already know as behavior analysts and as educators, as teachers, as parents, come on. If you're trying to make something less aversive, you want to pair it with really amazing things. However, if it's currently in a high state of aversion and we pair really amazing, awesome things, those really amazing, awesome things are going to potentially acquire the aversive, you know, um, characteristics. And we don't want our favorite things to become aversive to us. So that's why, and it makes really good sense, that the research says once the feeling of the heightened anxiety has subsided, then we will place our full attention on something that is of interest and pleasurable to us. One of the other recommendations, which I think is incredibly important, yes, I'm a social being. I love to be on social media and talking with people, doing these podcasts with the guests, especially hosting people. But there's a difference between having lots of engagement and connecting face-to-face -face with our family and friends. Symptoms of anxiety become worse when we are feeling isolated. Maybe that happens on an island. Maybe it happens for you where you live. Maybe you feel like you're on an island. Reach out to people who care about you on a regular basis. Learn to say, hey, how's it going? Want to go to dinner? Let's take a walk. Um, and if you feel like you don't have anyone that you can turn to, you should explore or could explore ways to meet new people. And we can use social media as that, as that avenue, as that bridge. There's a lot that's beautiful and wonderful about connecting online, doing things across geographic, you know, boundaries and time zones. It's, it's essential, really, to uh, my success. And so it's something that's really important, but it's not more important than connecting face-to-face -face with our family and friends, which for me, is going to require a flight. It's not about getting rid of the anxiety, which is what I've really tried to embrace and learn, but it's about getting rid of the fear of the anxiety and getting back to living your best life. Thank you for joining me today as I share with you where I'm at on my journey, and I hope to have more information and to present on this topic more in the future. Until then, you can find information about this and behavior analysis at www.behaviorgabe.com.